0: Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nellie Galan. Let's get started. I'm so excited to interview one of my favorite women in the world. I love calling her my friend. A lot of people confuse one of us for the other because we have a similar voice and the whole thing, and we're both Cuban girls. Ileana Musa is the head of international banking and lending at Morgan Stanley. She's a boss. She's unbelievable. She's a mom. She's a great wife, a great daughter, a great granddaughter, and a great friend, and the most unbelievable person that gives back to her community. Ileana Musa, I am so happy. I'm just happy to be with you and hang out with you like we do in real life. And I just, you know, I have mad, mad, mad respect for you. Well, Nellie, right back at you. It's been just so much fun, but also
1: inspiring. First of all, I was telling you a moment ago, but the podcast and the work you're doing here is just amazing because there's so many nuggets of information and practical application of those ideas that are going to go an incredibly long way. And it's going to be part of your legacy, but always great to spend time with you. You are a constant dose of inspiration for me. So thanks for having me.
0: And don't you love that we're doing Mi Mundo Rico in Spanish and that Latinos that are coming here or immigrants can listen to all these people, also not all Latinos. And that's what I think is important for us, that we have to help each other, but we also have to listen to other people from other walks of life, other ideas. And I want all of us in our community, Spanish or English, to be able to listen to all this. So I'm super excited.
1: Yes. You know, I think for many Latinos here we're bicultural and so taking the best of both worlds is what it's all about and getting comfortable with hearing from folks that culturally may be very different, but yet from a business and financial standpoint I've gotten it right. And I always say it's about shortcuts and learning from those who have come before us and then also You know, for me, it's all about how do we get that next generation to be able to do it in half the
0: time. So let's start from the beginning because you have such a big job. And I know a lot of women out there are listening and going, How the hell do you get there? Did you go to Harvard? Did you go? What did you do? And I know that you're a Cuban girl raised by a single mom. And how in God's name did you even think to even get into this business? What happened? Yes, you know, some folks have a roadmap
1: and a well-thought-out plan. For me, it started with our values, similar, Nelly, to many Latino families that first get exiled in another country. That was our story. You know, I came at a young age. My parents had to make the difficult decision to split. I was one of three kids. And my sister was very ill, and my mother decided to go ahead of my father because his visa never arrived. And that put us in Spain for almost three years and later in Miami. And the first decade was really all around reunification, getting the family back together. My parents had a plan to ultimately be together in the U.S. That didn't materialize. My father ended up serving a
0: 12-year prison term. A lot of people don't realize in our countries of origin, if you speak out, you go to political prisoner and become a political prisoner. And that's a very sad thing because that separates us a lot. Yes. And if you're an entrepreneur, which my father was, and
1: you have Capitalistic ideas, and you want to advance your business, and that goes against the
0: grain in a communist regime. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so, anyway, as a result of that, I was raised by a single mom, and you know, I say even though those were trying times, early days, I felt rich in so many ways because my mother had a philosophy of abundance, and as a result of that, was very creative, innovative, and always glass half full, and so that clearly was a big influence for me in terms of being very driven, having a strong work ethic. I started to work at the age of nine. And so some of those early experiences really shaped me as I started to get into
0: college. I was going to be a dancer, Nellie. No wonder you're married to an artist and you love artists. (laughs) Now I get it. Exactly. You know, you find a channel.
1: And for me, it's been my partner. But I was going to be a dancer by the time I finished high school. I went to public school in Miami. And I ended up going to the University of Miami on a scholarship. And that's really when I met my father. I was a junior in high school. And so he was a big
0: influence for me. So wait a minute, your dad finally got out of prison. My father gets out. And your parents never got back together? Never got back together. Ay, que triste. That's so sad. It was
1: very trying. You know, after 10 years, they came to the realization, my mother did, that it just probably wasn't going to happen. And they needed to part ways. And so... Fast forward, you know, I met my father one afternoon, I was in high school during cheerleading practice. And the principal called me over and said, Musa, your father's here to see you. And it was really just spur of the moment. I learned he was in the States. I didn't know it at the time. And we started a relationship. And it was his influence that really got me to think about finance. He was an entrepreneur, started his own business at almost 60 years old arriving in the US, not speaking the language, but very, very driven, just like my mother was. And so he leaned into me and said, you know, you should major in finance and minor in dance. And so as a result of many of those conversations, I decided to declare my major third year in and study finance. I love numbers. And i had been working in real estate while I was going through school. So I already had a lean into Number one, relationship building. I liked sales, but declaring and getting a degree is a whole other ball of wax, but I decided to go
0: for it. And so from there, in order to go into finance, you had to go to New York, right? Because that's where the world of finance was. How did you make that leap? So after college, you know, when Chaz and I, we both decided to do
1: graduate studies. So that's your husband, Chaz. Chaz, my husband. We knew each other in high school, but dated in college, and he studied away at different schools, and so it was a long-distance relationship for years. And then his last year at Carnegie Mellon, he had to go to Russia, and so what we did is we got married. Moscow, because it was a joint program with the Moscow Arts Theater School. Oh, And so they were going to perform at the theater, work at the theater. And so it was a total immersion program. They had to learn the language. And so we got married and three days later, we were off to Moscow. And so the time we were there, we were evaluating what was next. And I wanted to be in Miami, but he needed to be in New York because he landed an agent. And so he went out and I said, OK, let's go to New York for a year. And so that's how I ended up in New York. It wasn't in the plan. It wasn't something I wanted to do. But again, he pushed me to do it. I told my family I'm leaving. You know what that's like, Nellie? It's a drama. <laughs> in terms of branching out, you know, there's a lot of emotion. And so my father said, go, you need to do it. My mother was, it's not what we do. You worked incredibly hard. And now you're about to reap the benefits that you should be doing it here in South Florida with your family." So I took the leap and I got to New York. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a Rolodex. If you look at my resume, I didn't have the experience for Wall Street. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. And so it became about what I had learned, which was, you know, my mother loved the yellow pages. I always say this story. Uh, the, The current generation doesn't know what that is, but she used the yellow pages. That was her Rolodex. And she would make calls all the time to solve whatever problem we had at home or otherwise. And so she always leaned in and was very proactive in connecting with people she didn't know and making her ask and finding solutions to sometimes very complex problems. And so that's what I did when I got to New York. I hit the phones and I talked to a lot of recruiters until one took my call. We met, we hit it off, and he put me in front of the head of the business for a major financial institution, and I started as his assistant with an MBA. So why did I do that? You know, sometimes folks will ask me, you could have kept going, but... We struck a deal and the deal was I would support him and you would teach me the business. And I shared my vision. I always talk about this whole notion of visionary leadership, which is anybody you come across, regardless of where you are in your journey, you've got to talk about the bigger picture. What's the dream? You've got to paint that picture. And so I painted the picture for him and I said, I will do what it takes, but I know I want to lead. I know how to manage. And so as you think about growing your business, are you going to be looking for other leaders to play a role strategically with you and for you? And he said, absolutely. We're planning on scaling this. The business was in Latin America. And so obviously there was big opportunity to do more. So I planted that seed and then I went to work. And you know what I brought to the table, Nellie, was thinking every single day, how do I create value beyond my role? because I was answering phones, I was an administrative assistant, but I knew I could do so much more. So I was constantly thinking about who can I help?
0: Who do I reach out to? How do I make connections so that I can stand out? And let me stop a minute for the people that don't understand what that means. Because I think that when you're working in, especially in finance, more than anything else, but in any company, and I know this from being on boards and I I listen to employees and I feel like they don't still get it. You bring money, you bring revenue. You bring contacts that bring money. I mean, everybody wants to think it's all this ephemeral stuff. No, if you're spending money in a company and you're not bringing money in, you're not as valuable. Am I right? Yes. It's all about capital,
1: capital creation. And that's what you do, right? Like you need human capital, but at the end of the day, it's money in motion and putting that money to work to drive impact, right? Whether it's shareholder value or in the case of a family, they're thinking about their business financial legacy etc and so it's you know there's this whole ecosystem around it and you've got to play your part to make a difference ultimately and you've got to grow it and you have to measure yourself and as a result of that you start to build a track record so i became maniacal about measurement i always say you know you've got to measure everything because as you're telling your story being able to highlight the value you've got to put it into numbers. It's one of the best ways to articulate what you're able to contribute as you're looking for new opportunities.
0: And also, I know that you're a big proponent of always, as you're going up, fighting for your worth and asking for rate. And the only way you do that is if you keep track of what you brought in to the company. Totally, because when you're ready
1: to negotiate for whatever it is that you're doing, you've got to have your pitch and you have to prepare Right. You have to go in with what it is that you want and you have to be very, very clear and specific and be able to articulate it. And that takes preparation. So being able to rattle off those numbers in terms of contribution and impact, people will take notice. But part of that is you've got to first do the work. You have to first make your mark and you have to first deliver results. So in my mind, I knew there were stepping stones to this. I had to learn the business. I had to then start to deliver results. And that's how I started to stand out. You were building your own brand. Building my own brand, you know, Musa Inc., as I call it. So how am I standing out among 70 people in this office that have 20 years on me in terms of my contribution? And so I was always trying to find an edge. What can I bring to the table that's going to be very unique and stand out? And again, it was always thinking beyond what I'm doing day to day. Even if I was organizing the supply closet, making the Starbucks runs for everybody. I mean, this is what I was doing right at the beginning, answering phones, fix this, whatever was needed in that office. That's what I was doing.
0: Because you always tell me too, that in that trajectory that you felt like the other way you were going to stand out was by creating change in the organization. Yes, because there's always opportunity, right? And so you're scanning and you're
1: thinking, how can I make things better? And then again, some of it is within your remit in terms of your job and scope of work. And some of it is outside of it. But you have the agency to raise your hand to say, I see an opportunity to do this and this is how I can help. And so I raised my hand a lot. And I think, you know, when we think about women and negotiations, we don't do that enough. The research shows it, Nellie, as you know, that we need to have a voice, but we need to also use that voice. And we don't need to ask for permission. I think too often we get into of philosophy of waiting, because we believe that if we work hard, things were going to follow through and things are going to come to us. But again, I had the benefit of being raised by a single mom that didn't wait, that always asked, and was very unapologetic about everything she did. And when I had doubts about what I wanted to do, she'd always lean in and encourage me to go for it. You know, her favorite phrase was, a no ya lo tienes, like, you have a 50% shot of getting a yes. Whereas if you do nothing, you're gonna have a hundred percent chance of nothing happening. So what do you stand to lose? And so the resilience around building that muscle so that rejection doesn't knock you down, but makes you stronger. When I arrived on Wall Street, that's what came with me. And that was what gave me an edge as I took on this first role and then made my jump, my first management role in another financial institution. And there I went to interview. Everybody had 20 years on me again. And I remember I worked with um, a female recruiter, Nelly, and she took my resume and she said, I'm going to work with your resume. She gave it back to me. And I'm like, this isn't me. I read the sheet of paper and I'm like, you're describing somebody else. And she said, no, this is you. But this is how you brand the work that you've done. All the years you worked in real estate, your education, all the learnings you've had over the last two and a half years in your first role, the positioning really matters. And so I started to learn the story matters. The way you come in and articulate your value really matters. And so I landed that second job. I had the language skills. I know you talk a lot about languages in terms of being able to create value by being bilingual. And I reap the benefit of that. Immediately because they needed somebody bilingual. They didn't have any marketing content. I became a translator again, wasn't in my scope of work, but I did all this work beyond what I needed to do every day in order to create
0: value for the organization. There's two pieces of this puzzle that I think are important. You and I both share that we've always had a parallel track in real estate, and you are a real estate investor. Can you just talk a little bit about how you started working in real estate young? So for me, my interest in real estate,
1: priority number one, Nelly, was buying my mother home. I had rented for many, many years. We had bounced around from home to home. We had been evicted a couple of times. And so it was really important for me as soon as I started working to save enough money to buy that first home. I just, it was a matter of principle. As a result of that, I said, well, you know, I might as well learn this and actually get the sale myself so I can earn my own commission as opposed to giving the commission to someone else. And that's how I learned the business. And then I went to work for a broker who was an accountant by trade, had worked for one of the big four firms, and he taught me a lot. And was that during college? During college. So I was working full time, going to school through undergrad, and as I was pursuing my MBA at Florida International University, both. So he taught me a ton. I was building my clientele, selling homes to all of my girlfriends. Some of them still live in those homes today, but I started to understand the value and the power of owning real estate. Number one, not just the stability, but the equity that you build. The tax incentives. (laughs) Tax incentives, for sure. And so that put me on a path to think about real estate. The other thing I did is because I sold so much real estate, it was no longer emotional for me because it started as an emotional opportunity to solve a need for my family And then it became purely investing. How do I take this asset, unleash its value, put it into a portfolio? And so I started to buy more real estate over the years. And that helped me with sales, relationship building, and then just thinking about real estate as an asset class.
0: There's so many people in finance, surprisingly, that are very good at like talking finance, but they actually don't even do the stuff that they tell their clients to do. It's very weird. They're not congruent in a way. And the idea that we've had to, as immigrants, get our hands dirty and always be in the mix of it. And that's why I got interested in finance, too, because, you know, I was doing TV and all these other things. But I also noticed, as you know, that all the billionaires I worked for were always like buying buildings, doing other things. And we've learned. And that way you understand your customers, too. Of course. And uh, being multidimensional. Right. And I think
1: the world of finance is for everyone. I talk to students and women and Latinos. I say, this is for everyone. It's not for just people who have studied finance. There's access for everyone and we have a choice and we need to get in the game and we need to stay in the game. And I remember, Nellie, very early on, for me, stability was about income. And then I learned income isn't enough, right? My goal became, okay, I need to transition from stability to having income to becoming financially independent to then thinking about legacy. And so to me, those are the building blocks that are so important. And we need to stay on that journey. I think for many of us, we start with stability and income, and then we don't take it to the next inning, which is so important, on becoming independent.
0: What I feel when I hear you and knowing all the women that I've met, as you know, and you and I both have done many events and, you know, so many women say, oh, my God, I'm being told that I'm too loud or I'm too passionate or I'm too much. And I have to say, I was told that a million times, but I was in the entertainment business where in a way I had to cultivate almost being a showman. Even though people don't realize this about me, I'm very introverted. I know I don't come across that way because I've had to create this persona that's like putting on a show. And I could get away with it because it's the entertainment business. But knowing you, that you're A, very positive, but you're also kind of loud and you're also very like excited and passionate, in finance where you have to dress a certain way. And a lot of women tell me, I can't make it in corporate America because I like to wear my earrings and my crazy hair and my this and my that. And I could do all those things in the entertainment business. How did you navigate those waters knowing that you have such a defined personality? Like look at your hair, your long hair. I mean, did you have to change yourself to be in this world? I did, and I call it flexing.
1: I don't view it as giving up authenticity. It's understanding the arenas where you're going to play. And then I want to play to win. When I showed up on Wall Street, I had a suit that I borrowed that was bright royal blue. I didn't know any better. So I definitely didn't dress the part. And I started to look around again because I pay attention. And I noticed a lot of navy blue suits and very subtle colors. And so what I've learned over the years, Nellie, is Not everything works everywhere. And so the ability to pivot and adapt to the environment where you're going to be, to me, is the key. And so I think a lot about what's the audience, what's the forum, where am I going to be? And then I dress accordingly. If I'm going to be in a boardroom um, and I know it's going to be a conservative setting, I'm going to work in the navy blue suit. And by the way, it doesn't compromise the ideas I'm bringing to the table or my voice. It doesn't. I just need to make sure I feel good in it. So the suit has to speak to me, but I do adapt and I flex. And so if it's an environment where I can wear the bright pink dress, I'll do that too. But the whole notion of it being one size fits all, always, to me, it's not optimal. You need to be able to adapt for the environment. It's sort of like when we take a trip, we make a suitcase depending on where we're going. So I make a suitcase for the settings and the arenas where I'm going to operate. And it's got to feel good to me. And then it's about the ideas and my voice and what I'm bringing to the table. And I'm not distracting people because of the way I look. I think it's important to recognize if we're going to distract people, because if everybody in that table, Nellie, looks like me and culturally has that affinity, then we're all going to focus on the ideas. But am I very different to the other people in the room? I need to be aware of that. That's never been an issue for me. It's something I learned the first decade of my career. But when I started, I thought it was fair game and
0: anything went, and I learned that's not the case. And I'm not really sure we're told that. And I'm glad you're saying it because I think we try to tell everybody, let it rip now, do whatever. You know, I get annoyed watching the news and seeing Savannah Guthrie with 17 different earrings in her ears, and I'm going, she's distracting me from the news. I'm not judging her. If she wants to wear 17 earrings, it's great. But I don't think the news is the appropriate place to wear that. And Ileana, you know, when you and I go into rooms where we're going into a meeting or forget a meeting, a cocktail party, let's say, with, let's say a bunch of billionaires and we know that their wives are going to be there, for instance, and I don't think people realize that like a guy just goes to a meeting, we have to take two hours to look like something. And not only that, say Okay, there's a bunch of wives there. They're going to hate my guts because I look like, you know, whatever, with the long hair. i have going to have to change my look. I've got to go when I go in the room, be friends with the wives first. I mean, the kind of psychology we have to do to win and to be appropriate, and especially someone like you that you're in a wealth management business. All you deal with is wealthy people, and you have to be appropriate. You do,
1: and you have to adapt. Look, I've never been into cars. But as I got into this business and I knew I was going to end up meeting clients, I had to buy a different car and that's okay. And so there's decisions and there's choices we have to make, but it starts with awareness. So I always say, look, there's spectrums on all of these things. It's not black or white. Being able to operate in the gray is where the magic happens. And so I've made it a point throughout my career to strive for excellence in the gray. And so there's an art to that. It's not a playbook you're going to read that's going to say for meeting acts, you do these three things. And so you have to be very self-aware. You have to pay attention. And then you start to build that muscle and it becomes very natural to you. Like it's something that I don't have to think a lot about now. I can just do it. But early days, you bet. I had to be very thoughtful and had to plan it all out so that it would work for me. And then guess what? What I would say is as you pursue those positions of power, which we can talk about because Sometimes we think that if we do, we're losing a lot. It's actually the opposite. Then you get to change the rules because then others that are coming behind you are watching because you're in that position and you start to create workplaces that really work for women. And so part of this is also getting more women, right, to be in the game, Nellie, because then we're going to have more flexibility because there's going to be more of us. And so therefore- you're not going to stand out as much, right? So there's a balancing act there.
0: In rising through the finance world, you've worked for a lot of different companies, which is amazing. I mean, what are the pivotal moments and the decisions that really supported that climb of yours? The first one
1: I would say is, as I was approached for opportunities, 99% of the time I'd say yes, Nellie, and All of the time, I didn't have all the answers. And so again, I was very comfortable with ambiguity because of my upbringing. And that really helped me because I didn't need the playbook. I wanted to build the playbook. And so as folks talk to me about opportunities in terms of different roles, some of them, which many of them were not even created, that energized me. I was like, I get to build the strategy. I get to put pen to paper on defining this role. That's awesome. I want to do it. And then I'd go home and think about all the... Pluses and minuses. And sometimes I would get really stressed. But my starting point was always you're offering me something that looks like an amazing opportunity. You bet I'm going to go for it. And then I'm going to have the conversation about potential trade offs or the needs that I have to be able to take the role on. So I didn't waver, I would say, initially in terms of thinking about these bigger roles. And some of them had to take me to different geographies which I was able to do and willing to do. And then it also allowed me to build teams, which I think it's one of the coolest things about my career, which is because I've taken on these new roles, new strategies around new markets, I get to put teams together. So now I get to bring amazing people, build these very diverse teams and go build something and go to market in a very impactful way. And
0: that, again, energizes me. So The first thing I would say is just saying yes. But I think when you say saying yes to me, because I've heard you say this a lot, even when the thing isn't exactly right, you're not entitled. You know, like our ego gets very quickly involved in, oh, they're not treating me the way that I deserve. I know you try to pull that out. Part of it is knowing that you have a role in building
1: it the way you want it. And even if you don't get it immediately up front, you can influence that over time. So this whole notion of there being a journey to whatever you're going to do, but you have to first articulate why you're deserving of what you're asking for, put it within the business context, because I always say for anything that I'm asking, I'm thinking about what's in it for them. What's important to the person I'm talking to, if it's my future boss and I'm talking about a new role, why do they need this role? I put myself in their shoes in terms of what's important to them. And then I try to solve my needs. Through that lens but coming in it's understanding there's always going to be scarce resources there's always going to be constraints there's always going to be competing priorities so that's the environment that you're operating in so you're competing like everybody else in order to be able to get your work done so you walk in you check your ego at the door i mean look i became a managing director and some of the roles i had i didn't even have an office so This whole notion of just being able to roll with the punches. And I always say, my value is not sitting in an office. My value is being out there creating and executing on the work that I set out to do. So how do you define success for yourself? And part of that is, you know, how important are some of these things that ultimately are not going to drive your success? And so, again, I was very cognizant of that. And I walked in knowing this is a new chapter and I've got to build myself up all over again. The difference is I now have equity, right? I now have a brand, I now have a reputation and a track record and that's why I was tapped for a lot of these turnaround situations, you know, can you go run this region in this state that's ranked 18th out of 21 and I would say, "Yes, I want that challenge." And then I would go and you know, a year later it was top 3 because I had the energy and the enthusiasm to turn things around. And that's the reputation I built. But there's always going to be this notion, Nellie, that you have to come in knowing potentially new role. You've got to build your mark all over again. And you've got to be willing to do it. You've got to burn the calories. And so you got to get comfortable with that. And I became very comfortable with it. I became comfortable with uncharted territory. I became comfortable with newly created roles that I got a chance to define. And I became comfortable with knowing that when you're doing, it's sort of like a startup, and you know this, when you're operating in a startup environment, you've got to solve everything because there is no precedent. So you've got to figure it out. You have to navigate organizations. You have to ask for favors. You have to get people to see your vision, to want to partner with you and come in. And so a lot of my journey has been about influence. How do I influence folks? How do I instill followership? To want to get other people to see my vision on something I'm creating that, quite frankly, most of the time is disrupting what we've traditionally done. And with disruption comes anxiety because there's change. So there's a lot of emotion there that you have to navigate. And so being able to build relationships with people to bring them along is part of that. And so all of these ingredients is what helped me, number one raise my hand to do what many didn't want to do and then build my brand around these turn around situations and new endeavors.
0: One thing I've noticed about you, and I don't think I've heard you articulate this, but I've just noticed it, is sometimes when you're in a company, your whole focus is dealing with the outside world. Like you're selling to people, you know, your customers. You put as much time in inside the company. You volunteer to do Hispanic Heritage Month. African-American month, whatever. You get to know everybody in the company deeply. And I have to say, when I was running a big company, I don't even know that I felt like I had time to do that. I don't even know how you do everything you do, to be honest with you. But I noticed you put a lot of energy into knowing everybody inside the company and volunteering for things inside the company. Is that a strategy? It's absolutely a strategy. And I'm so glad you brought it up because we don't talk about
1: that enough. It's part of the game plan. And it's part of the pregame, I call it, which is early in my career is about selling the idea, right? It's I have a solution and I want to pitch it to you and you should love it because it's a great one. Well, you know, people don't operate that way. They're like, how does your idea help me? You know, it's sort of like having your own business, right? Like if somebody's going to come in, whether it's an investor coming into your business or you're building a board or whatever the priority is, pitching a brilliant idea isn't enough. You've got to get people connected to that idea. And so that's something, especially when you work in big organizations, you know, it's very matrixed. So sometimes you have to go three levels up, four levels sideways, four levels down to get stuff done. And it could be exhausting. So what I realized is before I pitch my idea, I've got to connect with the individuals. I'm very thoughtful on who are going to be the decision makers in terms of what I need. What do they care about? All right. Time to plan, connecting with people. So a lot of times before I go into a boardroom, I'm connecting with individuals one-on-one. I'm starting. That's the pregame. Here's what I'm going to talk about. Here's why I'm doing this. How does that sound to you? What do you think the objections are going to be? So I am ready. By the time I enter the room, I know if something's going to go sideways because earlier in my career, things would go sideways. And then I would leave the meetings and I was like, how did that happen? I was totally blindsided, right? Well, I didn't socialize it enough. So I spent a lot of time thinking about other people and I socialize ideas a great deal. And sometimes it means that I sunset ideas, quite frankly. The timing may be off. So you've got to factor all that in. And by the way, sometimes, Nellie, it's 10 laps. It's not one. Sometimes you've got to do this over and over and over again to get people there. But that's what it takes to be an influencer. Wow.
0: Wow. I look at you cause I've seen you at so many events. And I wonder if my younger self, you know, when I was young and maybe I ran a company too young, I don't know that I got what I see that you do, which is you also make other people feel good. Like you really give them the credit and you empower them to feel like they're important. And I don't know if I did that the way you do it when I was young enough, you know, cause I was young and I was in my own ego. You were also busy right? Because I think sometimes we're working
1: so hard and driving things across the finish line that we don't have time. But what's been such a privilege for me, because I've been able to build these teams, I'm very aware of bringing others along, right? And so giving the exposure, giving the credit. And I think for women, it's really important, Nelly, because a lot of times you have a lot of people that do incredible work behind the scenes that never take the stage, that don't get to present their work. And so, you know, this whole notion of inclusion that we talk about, I think at the heart of that, a lot of people feel like they belong when they get to represent the work that they do. And so it doesn't take a lot to do that. And I'm constantly thinking about, can I do more? Because I I always feel like there's more to do there in terms of people that work incredibly hard to make things happen, but yet don't have the opportunity to have a seat at that table. And so it's incumbent upon all of us, especially for women, right, to bring others so they can have not just their seat, but their voice. And so creating the platform for them to do that is part of the responsibility that I have as a leader.
0: I want to talk about the finance world, because I think we need more people and more women to go into finance. And I think a lot of people get turned off to finance because they think it's like you have to be a mathematician to be in finance. And I loved when I interviewed Danny Garcia, because she got into finance, she wasn't even that good in college. And I don't think people realize that finance is just an industry, just like entertainment is an industry. doesn't mean you need to know how to act or produce. So once you're in the financial world, there are jobs in there that are very mathematical, but it is like any other business. It's sales, it's customers. Why is it important for women and people that don't ordinarily go into finance to go into finance? Yes. Everybody needs to be in finance. And to your point,
1: that term sounds very esoteric in terms of what it means. And a lot of folks think you need a PhD to grasp the concepts, and it's nothing like that. So the first thing I would say, the finance world, to your point, has many, many different roles, many of which are not solely focused on number crunching. So your ability to build relationships, marketing, legal, you have all these functions, risk management, all these functions in the finance world that are not necessarily the way you traditionally think about finance. And so it is a big world and it's for everybody. So that's sort of on the professional side. And that's why I do a lot of work with the universities, Nellie, around internships, because you know, we always say you can't be what you can't see. If you didn't grow up like me in a home where at the dinner table you were talking about finance or you had somebody in your household that worked on Wall Street, You didn't get that exposure to even think about that as a career. So one of the best ways to do that is to get exposure early on through an internship, because you get to see this world and the way people operate and the different roles. And then you get to decide, is this for me or not? So I always encourage students, even if you're studying biology, get an internship in finance, because you can go work for a private equity firm in healthcare with a biology degree if you like business. So there's a way to bring these worlds together between what you grew up loving and this whole other new world of finance, where you can still lend your talent and then earn wealth. Because I also think for our community, Nellie, we have to be more declarative on wanting wealth. You know, culturally, and you've talked about this, you know, sometimes you're taught not to talk about it. You're taught not to share your aspirations about it. I don't think that helps us. So I'm trying to create a world where we talk about it openly with our girlfriends. You know, it's not just about the shoes and the mascara. It's about the 401ks and the retirement plans and the next real estate venture. Because if we have more conversations, it starts to feel more comfortable. And those are safe spaces where people can learn. So for me, it's a professional setting and encouraging folks to get exposure to that world to make a decision. The second part is on the personal side. That's where access really matters. And there's no shortage of information available, Nellie, but the key is to just get started. I say, it. you know, one of the biggest gifts my father gave me was to teach me when I got my first job earning $40,000 a year that I still had to max out my retirement account contribution every year and that I had to move the monies every single month in terms of savings because it wasn't about transferring the $2,000. It was about the discipline of transferring the $50. And then, you know, my father used to always say, cuida los kilos, que los pesos se cuidan solo. Think about the decisions you're making financially because you need to be very thoughtful on how you're spending your money. So I was also very frugal when I got to New York. You know, I'd buy a 50 cent cup of coffee. We live beneath our means always. Absolutely. And that's what allows us to get a head start for the next generation, right? Because for many of us, we didn't inherit wealth. So you don't have a head start. So you need to start from zero. But what I tell everybody, it doesn't matter that you're starting from zero, it can be done. But you've got to get started. It starts with a budget so that you understand where you're spending the money. Then it starts with savings. Then you transition from savings to investing. Then you think about your diversification in terms of, right? Like, what are the different pools? Because you need to think about those different pools. And then you get to have choice. Because I always say, the whole point of all of this is to have purpose around the wealth we make. So we have choice. So you can decide what job you want to take. You can decide what trip you want to take. You can decide when you want to retire. And then you can decide how you want to give, right? And that's your legacy. Right. Like I did a scholarship at one of the universities on my mom's behalf for first gen students, because I knew how hard she studied in Cuba. She was an avid learner. And I know the difference an education can make in someone's life. And so to be able to lend my talent and build a program like that is, is a great way to pay it forward. There's a million ways to pay it forward. But again, to get there, you've got to have these building blocks done well.
0: And for you specifically, you have these markers that happen in your life that I think built your financial philosophy, right? The evictions, this whole thing with your mom, knowing that your mom had like an unstable background. And so as much as you work in finance, you're very clear on your financial life, which is, I think, the congruent part, which we all have to strive for, that we don't just... Talk about these things to other people and we don't walk the walk. I mean, as you know, it's a big deal to me because I feel like I want to be able to tell people these are the things you should do and I do them. I actually live that life and I know you do too. And that's another part of being a professional is being congruent, walking the walk of what you do.
1: Yes. And for women, Nellie, it becomes even more important because we know that women outlive men. And so if you think about your future, you need to evaluate your financial philosophy. You need to have that plan because at the end of the day, you're going to end up having to make these decisions. Whether you like it or not, you're going to need to make those decisions eventually. So it's all about preparation. And you could start at any phase of that journey. If you know very little, you can still get started. It doesn't matter where you are in life right now. And so it's really all about taking that first step, like with anything else, like with working out or anything else that's intimidating to you. But now you have social media. Now you have these platforms where you can get educated very easily. You have podcasts that you can listen to, right, to start to understand those concepts. And you can work with a professional as well that can guide you. So there's a lot of different options that you can start with. But the point is, especially for women, we've got to get in the game.
0: I feel like also what you've done way better than me, and I really look to you, is that I'm one of those women that went into business and I let a lot of my personal life fall through the cracks. I mean, I have had a personal life, I've had kids and all that, but I didn't do it as stably as you did it. You've also taken care of your mom, your grandmother, your husband is there, your daughter, uh, so I just, I'm perplexed all the time, how you do the intra-business out of the business, you deal with the customers and you have this very balanced life, which I always tell women they can't have. So how the hell did you do it? It's not balanced.
1: So it's integrated. I would say it's the way I would describe it. It's not balanced. It was very sloppy. And again, because I'm so comfortable with operating in that environment, that's not perfect. In an environment where there's a ton of trade-offs, in an environment where you have to make decisions without having all the answers, that has helped me in terms of creating that approach to my personal life too. And so, you know, I've been blessed with a partner that supports my career because early on we were both very focused on career. We waited, Nelly, in terms of growing our family for many years. And so my view has been not to let anyone think define who I am, including motherhood but I had waited for many years because I didn't think early on I was going to have kids. And so my parents, as you know, because you take care of your parents, you know, that puts enormous pressure on us. You know, it's sort of like they call it the sandwich, right? Generation, because you have to do both. And so sometimes as one of my previous bosses used to say, sometimes personal gets more of you. Sometimes the business and professional gets more of you, but, it's about choice. And so going for what you want and understanding it's not going to be perfect. I strive for excellence
0: knowing it's
1: not going to be perfect.
0: Because you've said to me, even though kids are a lot of work and you have a young child, that she calms you down, even though it's a lot of work. She does. She's my rock for sure. I think our kids change
1: us. You know, Our kids remind us that you know it's sort of the next chapter where... Similar to what we're talking about in terms of personal finances, there are no answers when you start, right? There is no playbook. You've got to learn as you go, but you lean in, you go for it, right? Sometimes you do better than others. But when you look back, you ask yourself, not just how did I change this person's life, like everybody tells me about Bella, but I always say Bella has changed my life in terms of her resilience. The way kids bounce back, Nellie, is just I'm always in awe about that. They can pivot. Like no one else. They can reset like no one else. And those are skills that I think as we grow up, we lose because we start to take things personally, right? Your point about ego, all of these things happen. So for me, it's been a blessing. And Bella is just an amazing girl, an entrepreneur. You know, I think she'll end up being an entrepreneur. She's got her cookie business, as you know. And so Her Girl Scout cookie business. Girl Scout cookies. We're about to kick off the season now. So I love them. So let me know. (laughs) I will. I will. But these experiences, you know, I sit on the Girl Scouts National Board, but these experiences and the reason I lend my talent there is to get more girls exposed to these leadership opportunities and to these business opportunities earlier on. Because if you can develop these skills as a child, think about what happens by the time you get to high school. It becomes so much easier. We don't need to talk about how to get in the game because they're already in the game. So that's what I get excited about. But yes, you know, she's my rock. And sometimes we think about all these stressors and then we go home and we see our kids and they ground us. And so it's a gift.
0: I meet so many women at a high level. And by the time they get to these levels, they're kind of bitter and unhappy and kind of have a lot of regrets and you have always been a sunny, optimistic, like it's going to work out. It's going to be great. And I don't know how you do it. I really don't. I think it's innate in you, but you've managed to have a chingona, very high level job, jobs, many jobs, and you managed to have all these employees that love you because you do put them Before you in front of people. I mean, it's unbelievable. And you also do really well with your clients and with your family. So I want to be like you. (laughs) I want you to run more off on me because you're too kind. You know, we all have
1: networks that support us. Like I always say, you know, it takes a lot of people and we're blessed. I mean, look, I have learned so much from you in terms of. Just your determination around everything you do and you give it a hundred percent and you don't look back. And I think that's part of it. I think it's all about mindset. And so, yes, I approach everything knowing that something great is going to happen. And maybe there's 10 things I put out there and two hit, but to me, the mindset is a starting point on knowing that you're going to lend your talent in a positive way to drive impact. And so- I can't go at it any other way. I say it all the time. The starting point has to be believing that something's great going to come out of it, even if it's different than what I initially planned. And by having that mindset going in, it just creates an energy around contribution and impact that gets people excited. And that's, people want to be part of a winning team. People want to be part of a winning strategy. And they want to associate with people that are thinking bigger, as I do. I'm constantly thinking of like you, right? Like anything that I can get to do with Nelly, I want to do because you're always thinking bigger. What's the next big thing you're going to go after? That's going to have impact. And so to me, the journey has been about being able to scale our efforts, Nellie, to not just do and be recognized. I think the recognition is incredible, but that's not why we do it impact is, right? We're constantly thinking about, could I spread the word in terms of my own experience to get other women and other Latinos to think, you know what, I can do it too. Because those people came before me, the sponsors that I had that, you know, said, Musa, we're going to give you this opportunity. Yes, I'd worked incredibly hard, but I had somebody that was willing to give me the opportunity and take a chance on me. And so I think we all have those people including our families. I am so blessed by my family, my parents, my siblings, my nieces and nephews. You know, we didn't have time to talk about my niece, but everything that I have learned, I have taught my niece at the age of 15. If we think about impact and getting this next gen going so much sooner, I'm seeing it in her. It's remarkable. And so
0: that's what keeps the energy going. And again, it's a ton of fun. So- Well, I love you. I'm so happy to spend yet another hour with you. And I'm glad for everyone to hear what a beautiful story your career and your life is. Thank you, Ileana. Ellie, thank you so much. And thanks for launching this podcast. Seriously, Uh,
1: congratulations. It's been just for anybody that hasn't tuned into the other episodes. It's worth every minute. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nellie Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.